Hey everyone, it is crazy to say this, but this is September 2020. This month's article from Emergency Medicine Practice is on infective endocarditis. And honestly, the timing is perfect. Most of us are still swamped with COVID-19 patients. And all of us who have to work in a COVID-19 unit, seeing patient after patient with fever, and multilobar pneumonia have developed pretty much the same differential at this point. It's COVID-19, COVID-19, or COVID-19. Plus, there is the occasional heart failure patient and the occasional multilobar bacterial pneumonia patient. Uh, we certainly aren't seeing very much of influenza, but this particular article this month brings light to a problem that we sometimes fail to include in our differential diagnosis. And I dare say that our authors, Dr. Hackett and Dr. Stewart, did an outstanding job reviewing a topic that many of us haven't had to actually look at since medical school. They made several really interesting points in this article that I want to discuss today. But if you haven't already done so, I highly encourage you to go and read the full article. It is packed with excellent information, and it's a great review of this disease. Some interesting points that they made, even just starting out in the beginning. The historical infectious or infective endocarditis patient is one who was born with some kind of congenital heart disease or contracted it as a result of streptococcus, had rheumatic heart disease, or had some kind of insult to their heart valve as a child, and then became predisposed to developing infective endocarditis. These people were typically young and typically presented with some of those physical exam findings that are reviewed in the article this month. But if you're in the United States or really anywhere in the Western world where access to healthcare is better, we don't see rheumatic fever or rheumatic heart disease that often anymore. It's a rare occurrence. We see congenital heart disease, and we certainly see children who have undergone significant heart reconstructive surgery. However, we also are seeing a growing population of IV drug users and another growing population of patients who are receiving cardiac procedures and having cardiac implantation of devices that previously didn't exist. And these patients now also make up a very susceptible population when we discuss this disease process. And most interesting, at this time of year, during 2020, in the midst of a pandemic, how do these patients present? Well, mostly with fever, which is actually one of the most common symptoms we're seeing now. It also is a presentation that involves potentially multilobar pneumonia from septic emboli, or the absence of fever with the presence of acute neurological findings, as in a stroke. And I don't know about you, but working in a stroke center, we see this kind of presentation all the time. But I can't actually tell you when the last time I stopped to consider infective endocarditis or septic embolus or a mycotic aneurysm as the cause for the acute stroke that I was seeing. It's really a difficult diagnosis to make, but there are a number of things we should keep in mind. So starting from the top, 
the authors talk about what we learned in medical school was the categorization of this disease. That is the acute and the subacute bacterial endocarditis. And although the focus previously was on the duration of the disease process, what is now the focus and a better way to categorize this disease is actually the location. That is right versus left bacterial endocarditis. And the type of bacterial involvement is becoming more and more an important factor when you're classifying this particular disease, especially when you consider that based on location, the underlying cause is likely different and therefore the bacterial pathogen is different. Currently, more than 70% of the cases are occurring in native valves. The most common are those with mitral valve prolapse who now have an eight-fold increased risk of this disease. But there is also the subpopulation of IV drug users. And both of these populations demonstrate damage to the valve with platelet aggregation and then sort of a prime environment for bacteria to start growing on the valve. These two disease processes fall into the right-sided endocarditis, as do the nosocomial infections. So those patients who are putting lines in or catheters in or who are undergoing catheter-based procedures in the hospital, all of these patients are at risk for infective endocarditis. And then there is the other population of patients. Those undergoing hemodialysis regularly are also at risk. Those with implanted cardiac devices, pacemakers, AICDs, LVADs are also becoming more popular. All of these present a risk for infection of the device and therefore the heart. Patients who are undergoing repeated vascular access procedures or have multiple visits to the emergency department requiring vascular access. And patients who are immunocompromised. And if you're like me, this list is starting to sound exceedingly familiar because it's encompassing most of the patients that we treat on a routine day-to-day -day basis. The authors were also kind enough to include a chart demonstrating the difference in the pathogens causing this disease from the 1960s to the current pathogens that we see. And you may have guessed already, but the bulk of these patients are now being infected with Staph aureus. But when I say the bulk, I'm only talking about 30%. In fact, about 10% are coag negative strep, about 18% are strep viridans, and about 14% are culture negative, something completely mind baffling, right? So we have someone with infective endocarditis who is producing nothing on culture, but has a antibiotic sensitive disease process. And the reason to know the multiple pathogens and the most common pathogen, depending on the presentation, is because this is where we are going to make the largest impact as emergency physicians. We need to begin the correct antibiotic initially, and that correct antibiotic is chosen based on the most common pathogen for the either left or right-sided infective endocarditis presentation. And of course, when we're talking about the presentation, we mention the differential diagnosis, which is really quite broad. 
The authors in the article mentioned that infective endocarditis has a reputation as being the great imitator. And certainly I can understand that because the differential produced here in the article actually lists things like pneumonia, sepsis, acute heart failure, acute ischemic stroke, intracranial hemorrhage, meningitis, acute kidney injury, and dysrhythmias, which again, these are routine diagnoses that we are seeing very regularly in the emergency department. And typically, we are not considering this particular entity in the differential diagnosis of all of these disease processes, especially when we have a protocol-driven approach to most of these diseases. We're not stopping to consider, wait, there is something a little unique about this acute ischemic stroke. Or there is something odd about this presentation for heart failure with fever. Now, in the setting of COVID-19, maybe this is not so unusual anymore. We actually have lots of COVID-positive patients, but more often than not, we will test somebody for COVID and then be surprised when it come back negative and think, well, this is likely a false negative we need to retest. Perhaps we should be thinking this might be infective endocarditis. And why do we care? Well, we care because in the United States, here where we practice, the 90-day mortality rate is approximately 24%. Now, let's stop and think about that for just a moment. 24%. That's almost one in four. For every four people you see with this kind of infection, one of them is going to die. That is huge. That is very, very significant. Well, if it's an important disease and it can mimic many other disease processes, how exactly is it that we're supposed to pick this up in the emergency department? The answer is in the traditional approach to history and physical and with a little bit of broadening when it comes to testing. First, there's the history. We should consider things like, has the fever been going on for more than a week? Have there been repeated evaluations by the primary care physician or even in the emergency department for persistent fever without a diagnosis? And regardless of the duration, fever is actually the single most common symptom in about 80% of cases. Also, we should be asking if there's a history of valvular or heart disease that's structural heart disease. So things like prosthetic heart valve replacements when they occurred, if they've occurred, a history of aortic stenosis, a history of mitral valve stenosis or insufficiency, a history of congenital heart disease, and then is there a history of cardiac procedures? Does the person have a pacemaker or a defibrillator or an LVAD? Have they recently undergone the increasingly popular TAVR procedure or transcatheter aortic valve replacement? And lastly, have any Outpatient procedures occurred recently, even simple things like minor one-day or same-day surgeries or even dental procedures, anything that might make the patient transiently bacteremic within the past six weeks or so prior to the onset of fever. When it comes to physical exam findings, these haven't really changed, but the focus on the symptoms has changed slightly. So for example, we have all learned for our board examinations that the typical lesions infective endocarditis presents with are things like splinter hemorrhages of the nail beds or Janeway lesions of the palms and maybe even the soles of the feet. 
But in actuality, these things are present in 5% or less of cases. What is more common are some of the findings that actually cross disease processes. So other than fever, we might see things like acute onset of heart failure, presenting with tachycardia, hypotension, poor peripheral perfusion, delayed capillary refill. There may be vascular symptoms, things like occluded vessels, stroke presentations. Even transient ischemic attacks, especially in young patients, or especially in the setting of a history of fever. There may be embolic phenomenon, things like pulmonary infarcts or renal infarcts. There may even be EKG abnormalities included with the fever, things like new onset of heart block in a patient who's had fever for longer than a week. These kinds of things are some of the more subtle but more prominent physical exam findings that you will see in patients with this disease process today. Most striking is the fact that up to half of these patients will present with some kind of central nervous system finding, and about a third of them will actually just have acute CVA as the presentation. A third about a third of patients with infective endocarditis are just going to present with stroke. That's an alarming number. And if that's the case, then what exactly is our emergency department evaluation supposed to entail, especially if we have this disease process in our differential diagnosis? So first and utmost, the top of the list is suspicion. Suspecting it in the presence of fever or in your acute stroke patient is number one. Second is obtaining your routine emergency department evaluation, which is going to include labs and a chest x-ray and an EKG looking for that new onset heart block or conduction abnormality that was not present before but is now present in the setting of fever. And that may actually be the only thing pointing towards a new cardiac abnormality. And then there's going to be imaging. Now, I mentioned chest x-ray already, but really, chest x-ray is there to image the lungs. You're looking for alternative diagnoses. You're looking for that multi-lobar pneumonia, possibly septic emboli producing changes on a chest x-ray. But these things are not diagnostic of infective endocarditis. The real diagnostic test here is going to be a transthoracic followed by a transesophageal echocardiogram. But in the emergency department, we don't have access to these services on an emergent basis 24-7. At least, we don't at my shop. And so we do have to have the suspicion and to begin the evaluation with some other tests. Point-of-care ultrasound in the ED is certainly helpful. There hasn't been a large published trial showing that point-of-care ultrasound in the emergency department is diagnostic of infective endocarditis. But there are some case reports of physicians who have picked up on valvular lesions by performing bedside limited echocardiograms in the emergency department. Although point-of-care ultrasound can be diagnostic, it does not exclude the diagnosis, meaning we don't expect people using point-of-care ultrasound to pick up 100% of these cases, but we do expect that they might see some valvular abnormalities or other abnormalities that will point in this general direction. Follow-up tests, though, are going to include the traditional transthoracic echocardiography and then the transesophageal 
echocardiography. And the reason is that combining both shows the vegetations in about 90% of cases. Also, they'll pick up on valvular regurgitation in about 60% of cases, and the paravalvular or surrounding the valve abscesses in about 20% of cases. So even though these remain the gold standard, they're still not perfect ways to completely make this diagnosis and image the heart. Our authors in the article are also careful to say that if your transthoracic echocardiogram and your transesophageal echocardiogram are non-diagnostic, but you have a high suspicion for the disease, that these tests should be repeated in three to five days. And that's because new lesions may show up then, and it's understood that neither of these tests is 100% sensitive or specific. Now, I understand what you're thinking. Those things are inpatient tests, and how is that really helping me in the emergency department? And the answer is, well, we're getting our chest x-ray, and we're getting our point-of-care ultrasound. And if both of those are normal but our suspicion is high, our job is to begin antibiotic therapy. Are there other imaging modalities that can be used? Sure. Actually, multi-slice computed tomography, or CT, is actually becoming an adjunct imaging modality for echocardiography and can help delineate some of the cardiac anatomy. Also, MRI can be helpful, but for us in the emergency department, we're accustomed to using CT as a modality for stroke imaging, for neuroimaging, so that's CT angiography. And there is actually a role for that test in patients with acute stroke that we are already familiar with. That particular test is also good for evaluating things like mycotic aneurysms or aneurysms due to bacterial infiltration of the actual blood vessel wall causing an aneurysm, or emboli. So these emboli can come from left-sided infective endocarditis and be projected up into the cerebral circulation and present as acute CVA. And so there is a role for CT angiography in the acute evaluation, and we may actually stumble upon this disease process completely by accident. And actually, while we're on the topic of neuroimaging, the article does point out that the initial NINES trials did not exclude patients with embolic phenomenon, especially septic emboli as a cause for their acute stroke. But all of the major endovascular trials did exclude this subpopulation of patients. But we know that there are case reports and case series, as well as small retrospective studies that detailed the use of systemic thrombolytics and endovascular therapies in these patients. And both of these categories of patients showed increased risk for hemorrhage. In fact, in these studies, the hemorrhagic conversion was 20 to 42% of patients given thrombolytics in the setting of infective endocarditis. 20 to 42%. That's compared to the original nines number of 6 to 6.5% of patients who don't have infective endocarditis. And hemorrhagic conversion can occur in up to 12% of patients who undergo endovascular therapy compared to only 4% of the non-infective endocarditis patients. So we're looking at risks of intracranial hemorrhage that are anywhere from three to eight-fold higher in patients 
with infective endocarditis who receive these thrombolytic or catheter-directed or endovascular treatments for acute CVA. In fact, the FDA label for Activase specifically lists a warning or precaution in patients with infective endocarditis as the cause for their acute stroke. And the 2018 AHA guidelines for acute ischemic stroke also list bacterial endocarditis as a contraindication for alteplase. Well, if we're not going to give this stroke or this clinical presentation a thrombolytic because they're at increased risk, and we know that we have antibiotics to give this patient, are there any other treatments at our disposal? And the answer is yes. Our surgical colleagues have a subset of patients whom they can also intervene on. And those particular patients include those who have acute new onset congestive heart failure, severe valvular dysfunction, abscess detected on imaging, on echocardiography, or even on MRI, intracardiac fistulas, destructive vegetations, or those with a high likelihood of embolizing if they haven't done so already, those with new heart blocks, and lastly, those who've already experienced a CVA or TIA without resulting hemorrhage. All of these patients are in the higher risk category who have been shown to benefit from surgical consultation and potentially from surgical intervention. Well, when it comes to antibiotic therapy, the article has two excellent tables. Table 6, empiric antimicrobial therapy for infective endocarditis, and Table 7, indications for specific antimicrobial therapy for infective endocarditis. Both of these drive home the point that your first go-to antibiotic needs to be vancomycin because the largest subset of patients will be experiencing infective endocarditis due to staph aureus, plus a second agent that's going to cover some of your other organisms. For someone who has a native valve or a prosthetic valve that's been there longer than a year, that's going to be just two grams of rocephin plus your vancomycin. For someone who's had a prosthetic valve for less than a year, then it's going to be vancomycin plus an infectious disease consultation because these patients are going to end up on agents like gentamicin or rifampin, They may require daptomycin if they're vancomycin intolerant or phosphomycin, which also has activity against MRSA. So we now see the reliance on not just the admitting team, but consultation with infectious disease and consultation with cardiothoracic surgery. And now we're talking about a multi-specialty approach to a patient who previously was just given antibiotics and admitted to medicine. And of course, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about prevention. And when we talk about prevention, we're talking about antibiotic prophylaxis for people who have known valvular disease or implanted devices. And this can be as simple as amoxicillin or clindamycin before dental procedures, or things like cephalexin, ceftriaxone, or even vancomycin for soft tissue infections in the setting of a patient who has known heart disease. All of these things can be adequate in preventing this disease. And of course, as usual, there is an outstanding risk management and pitfalls section at the end of the issue with multiple case scenarios that should draw your attention. 
things that we are very likely to experience in our daily practice. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we have reached the end of the September episode of Amplify. But before I sign off, I do want to tell you about the EB Medicine LLSA Study Guide. This is the 2021 edition, hot off the press and available for purchase today. That study guide includes not only each of the articles off the reading list, but an associated summary with key points and sample questions. Plus, completing that activity gains you 35 CME credits. It's an outstanding value, and I highly recommend it. And you can learn more about it at ebmedicine.net. Until next time, I'm your host, Sam Machine.